The American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 31, The Naval Battle of Guadalcanal. Are you listening? All you fine boys in your comfortable foxhole, listen to So welcome back. I'm glad to be here, and I'm happy that you're listening to the show and hopefully enjoying it. If you're a new listener, please feel free to check out the website. We have the sources that we use to create the various episodes, as well as some maps that will help you understand what's going on. You can also sign up for show updates via the email when you head over there. Now, if you're enjoying the content and would like to assist, there are several ways for you to do so. Every time you shop on Amazon, just enter via one of the linked sources on our website. If you do that, then we get a kickback from Amazon, and it costs you absolutely nothing. You don't have to purchase the source even. Just enter Amazon via one of those links. Also, you can head over to Patreon and sign up there. For as little as $10 a month, you'll get access to all of the bonus content, which includes several bonus shows that are available only on Patreon. Now, those bonus shows are Quagmire, the story of American involvement in the Middle East, and the War on Terrorism. Then there's 1983, the year the world almost ended, and the newest one on colonial American history. I've lost count at this point, but I'd say it's probably something like 40 hours of extra content. So just go over to www.patreon.com forward slash American history, and in a matter of moments, you will have access to a ton of stuff. All right, so the last episode saw us move away from the land battle taking place on Guadalcanal and move over to look at what's going on out at sea. We ended that episode with another Pyrrhic victory for Japan, in which they continued to be unable to land a decisive blow against their American adversaries. With that said, let's head back to the fall of 1942. Our song of the week this week is Moonlight Serenade by Glenn Miller. I'll see you in a few.
Okay, it is now November 1942. Fall had arrived back home in the United States, but here in the Solomon Islands, it was the fourth month of the campaign to take and control Guadalcanal. Both the Japanese and the Americans were intent on securing a victory here, and they doubled their efforts to do so. Now, in Tokyo, the Imperial General Headquarters issued a command for the third time now for the Army and the Navy to launch a combined assault on the Americans in the region. However, this time it called for not another nighttime attack. No, this time the assault was to be conducted in the day and would consist of a steady push against the Americans. The plan called for the Sende Division, or what remained of it after it was almost nearly destroyed by the Marines, to assemble west of the Matanikau River on Guadalcanal. There it was to await the arrival of the 38th Division and then the 51st Division, which at that point was in China. The troops would all be shipped in and, at the same time, the Sende Division would be able to build up its numbers with fresh troops who were coming in from Japan. Now amazingly, at least in my mind it's amazing, the Japanese army, having suffered three straight defeats to the Americans, still believed in its ability to recover Guadalcanal, and with it the initiative in the Pacific. Part of the reason for this belief was the fact that they were also victims of the Japanese propaganda machine. They believed the reports that the Navy was winning victory after victory at sea. Now having said that, the leadership of the Navy had a different attitude. They were under no illusions. They were well aware of the fact that not only had they suffered frightful losses at the hands of the American Navy, but they were concerned about the risks they would incur trying to land ground forces and supplies on a beach that was in range of American land-based aircraft. Now, some admirals even went so far as to suggest it was madness trying to do this while Henderson Field remained operative and in the hands of the enemy. They argued that instead, the plan should be to build up their forces on Rabaul and use it as a rear base while they opened a new forward operating base on the nearby Buen Island. From here, the Japanese could then take out Henderson Field and move to reinforce the Sunday Division. Now, as logical as this plan might have been, Tokyo was having none of it. They demanded the plan be implemented and called for reinforcements to begin immediately via the usual method, the nighttime Tokyo Express. Furthermore, they were to bomb the American airfield in the day um, from the air and at night from the sea. Indeed, Yamamoto was at that very time working on a plan that drew heavily upon his intimidating uh, lineup of battleships. Now, the Japanese, of course, weren't the only ones who were concerned with reinforcements. The Americans had their own issues as well. On October 14th, President Franklin Roosevelt had ordered the Joint Chiefs of Staff to rush all available weapons to Guadalcanal. General George C. Marshall had placed the Army's 25th Infantry Division, based at that point in Hawaii, on alert for movement to the South Pacific. Admiral Halsey had ordered the 147th Infantry Regiment, the 9th Marine Regiment, the 2nd Marine Raider Battalion, as well as long-range artillery and even a battalion of Navy CBs forward to the canal. Now, there were two issues for the Americans at this point. First, the SS President Coolidge, a luxury liner that had been converted into a troop ship, was sunk when she hit a mine in October 1942, just off Espiritu Santo. Then there was Admiral uh, Richmond Kelly Turner. Apparently, Turner loved playing general, and he was holding up operations with an idea that he presented to Admiral Halsey. Now, his idea was to construct a second air base 50 miles east of Lunga Point, 
even though he was aware of the fact that General Vandegrift's engineers had said the place was not suitable for the construction of an airfield. Thus, an entire battalion of the 147th Infantry, about 50% of the Marine Raiders, and all of the CBs and artillery from the Americal Division were diverted to the new plan and not sent to reinforce Vandegrift. Now, as one can imagine, General Vandegrift was not happy when he realized he'd been shortened his promised reinforcements. He was able to convince Halsey to recall the expedition. That recall still meant that, for the time being, he was short of men he badly needed. Especially difficult to take was the loss of the CBs, whose skills and equipment would be needed to keep Henderson Field running now that the enemy was hitting the base regularly. Now, furthermore, as Robert Leckie notes, while Vandegrift had 23,000 Marines and about 4,000 soldiers under his command, that strength on paper was far from reality. These troops had been through the ringer, having experienced uninterrupted combat at a level no American forces had ever before or since seen. Months of almost constant fighting had turned them into walking skeletons of parchment flesh and quivering nerve. The men were close to exhaustion. Quote, Their bodies were taut rags of flesh stretched over sticks of bone. They had come to Guadalcanal muscular and high-spirited young men, but now each had lost at least 20 pounds. Some had lost 50, and their high fervor had ebbed and nearly flowed away. They were hanging on by habit only, fighting out of the rut of an old valor, end quote. As if that wasn't enough, they were lonely and losing hope. Their enemy wasn't just the Javanese. It was yellow fever, malaria, and dengue fever, dysentery, and tropical ulcers. Now, with that said, let's get to the actual naval battle itself. Halsey, as I mentioned last episode, had relieved Gormley and, to put it in the Admiral's own words, was forced to, quote, begin throwing punches almost immediately, end quote. There was no time to get settled into his new command. No time to set up his headquarters. Unlike the man he replaced, Halsey flew to the canal on November 8th. Met at the airfield by General Vandegrift, the new CO took a tour of the front lines. His uniform was nondescript khaki, so the men had no idea who he was or what he was until he was in amongst them. Now, due to operational security, there could be no advanced planning for his arrival, so he got to see the real thing. Now, of course, he wouldn't have gone for any parade ground reviews or Potemkin Village-style setups. Quote, it smells of exhibitionism, to hell with it, end quote. Noting their emaciated condition, the Admiral agreed with Vandegrift that they needed to be relieved by the Army as soon as possible. Halsey eventually met the island's press representatives, and this is where his famous bloody-minded nature was to make him famous. When asked about his plan to win, he said, quote, kill Japs, kill Japs, and keep on killing Japs, end quote. He was then asked if victory would mean the need to invade the Japanese home islands, and he said he hoped so, and that he looked forward to the carnage that would necessitate. In the meantime, Admiral Turner had rushed a convoy of transports, and their escorting cruisers and destroyers took the long way around San Cristobal and were supposed to arrive sometime between November 8th or the, through the 10th. But no matter what, they needed to unload all of their troops and supplies by the evening of November 12th at the latest. This was because of the fact that the Japanese were expected to arrive between the evening of November 12th and November 13th. Now, as the convoy arrived at the canal, the Enterprise, still wounded but able to fight on, slipped out to sea from Numea Harbor. 
Her forward elevator didn't work, and she was taking on water. The idea was for the carrier and her screening ships to lay off to the south of the island, thus hopefully avoiding Japanese submarine patrols and enemy recon flights. On the afternoon of November 12th, a flight of Japanese Mitsubishi planes armed with torpedoes appeared. Fanning out, they were hit hard and landed no hits on the Americans. American recon flights searching up the slot discovered several columns of Japanese warships, including some Congo-class battleships, headed in. Thus, at sundown, Turner ordered the fleet to depart, and he placed his cruisers and most of the destroyers under the command of Admiral Callahan, who'd have the unenviable task of having to deal with the oncoming Japanese task force. Because he lacked battleships himself, Callahan was in a world of hurt. His 13 ships would be outgunned. The captain of his flagship, Cassin Young, was reportedly overheard telling the admiral this was essentially a suicide mission. At midnight on Friday the 13th, Callahan's ships snuck back into Iron Bottom Sound. It was a dark night thanks to an overcast sky. The enemy was slowly revealed at ranges of 27,000 to 32,000 yards. They appeared to be arranged in two parallel columns. And at about a range of 1,000 yards, the lookouts could see vague forms moving in between them and the island. Suddenly, a searchlight illuminated the superstructure of the San Francisco, the Admiral's flagship. Both sides immediately opened fire, and all hell broke loose. The scene quickly became confused, with one officer noting it resembled a barroom brawl in which someone turned out the lights and everyone started swinging in every direction. Except this was ten times worse. Shells continued to drop all around us. Star shells and flares flung overhead. Tracers whizzed past from various directions. And everywhere we looked, ships burned and exploded against the backdrop of the night sky. To my ears, it seems like it must have been hell on earth. Now just how confused was the scene? The destroyer O'Bannon had to steer aggressively so she could avoid her sister, the Sterret. But that meant she was on a collision course with Atlanta. That meant Atlanta then had to execute an emergency maneuver of her own. She was then fired on by San Francisco, who mistook her for a Japanese ship and badly mauled her. Suddenly, San Francisco found herself alone, separated from her sister ships. Before she knew it, she was staring down the barrel of a giant 14-inch gun from the battleship Hai. The American was able to hit first, and the Japanese battleship was wounded. The big behemoth was then hit by at least three torpedoes fired from the Cushing, as well as some fired on her from the Laffey and the O'Bannon. In my mind, I see this giant brute being struck by several smaller fighters, but the monster being unwilling to go down without a fight. Now, as Robert Leckie notes, one of the most furious fights in all of naval history had begun. And on Guadalcanal, the veterans of the intense fighting on that island, both American and Japanese, took note. The thunder from the guns rolled across the bay and shook the men to their core. Quote, Scarlet star shells shot into the sky with the horrible beauty of hell. End quote. Ships moved about the bay, lashing each other with massive guns. It must appear, have appeared as if dragons were dancing out there, spewing fire at one another. Now, as I mentioned, San Francisco and other American vessels had raked the high, and she was wounded. But the big ship gave as good as she got. Her massive 14-inch guns fired and tore into the bridge of the San Francisco, killing Rear Admiral Daniel Callahan and almost every officer and sailor who had the misfortune of being stationed on the bridge at that moment. 
Callahan was buried at sea and later awarded the Medal of Honor by President Roosevelt. Finally, as daylight broke over the bay, the aftermath of the encounter could be assessed. Both sides had withdrawn to lick their wounds. Neither side had won a decisive victory, but historians seem to agree that the Japanese decision to withdraw meant this was another strategic victory for the Americans. Yamamoto now decided to postpone the landings and recalled the troop transports. The Hai was still afloat, and despite the best efforts by the Americans, she simply refused to be sunk. This allowed the Japanese to abandon her and then scuttle the big battleship themselves. The American ships, which had been damaged but were still afloat, were able to make their way to ports such as Sydney so they could be repaired and sent back out to sea before too long. Portland, San Francisco, Aaron Ward, and the Sturette all made their way safely to rear area repair facilities. The Atlanta was not so lucky. Having only been in service since late December 1941, the ship, which had already earned five battle stars, was taking on water. Despite the best efforts of her crew, she was simply wounded beyond hope of repair. The order was given to abandon the ship, and then she was scuttled, sinking in 400 feet just off Lunga Point. Just as an aside, the wreck of this ship was discovered by divers in 1992. There was a second naval battle on Guadalcanal on the 14th and 15th of November. Unlike the previous engagements, this one featured two battleships on the side of the Americans, the South Dakota and Washington, both of which were newer ships. South Dakota had, to put it lightly, her issues in the fight and was lucky to survive it. In the end, the Japanese were simply unable to reinforce the troops they still had on the canal. This meant they were unable to push the Americans off the island and had to eventually abandon the plan. Finally, on December 31st, the, gen- the Imperial General Headquarters, with the approval of Emperor Hirohito, agreed to evacuate all Japanese forces from the island and set up a new defensive perimeter on New Georgia. The Americans, on the other hand, could and now would resupply their forces on Guadalcanal at will. Two fresh divisions of troops arrived in February of 1943. The Allies were now able to continue their efforts to defeat Japan, confident in the fact that the supply route between the United States and Australia had been secured. President Franklin Roosevelt himself, upon learning of these results, commented, quote, it would seem that the turning point in this war has at last been reached, end quote. He wasn't wrong in that assessment, but the reality was the fighting would continue for the next two and a half years, and the worst of it was yet to come. Okay, so that's all I've got for you for this episode. Until next time, I'm Sean, and you've been listening to Season 4 of the American History Podcast. Shut it off or I'll rip. Oh, please, I like it. Wait a minute.